Today's reading is Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 10, and that can be found on page 1050. That's Luke 17, verses 1 to 10, pages 1050. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you, saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat. Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Hello everyone, good to be with you all, Uh, and I don't know, where's the camera? Hi to everyone on the live stream. Yeah, well, um, it'd be good to ask God to help us again uh, as he speaks to us, you know, as we look at the words of Jesus, because those words have power, we want him to change us, don't we, by them, so let's pray together. Father God, thank you that your words are powerful, that the words of Jesus are powerful. Uh, and we ask, that, uh, as we sung in that song, have mercy, Lord, forgive our sins, change our hearts, that we might live for you as we hear your words and as we respond to them. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Did you realize that there were three different uh, sizes of cups? I didn't know that. It's, it's amazing, you know, right. Of the water cups, I mean, not cups in the world, but, you know, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's great to be here. As, as John said earlier, we live in Spain, uh, so we're here for yeah, uh, a while, for the next three weeks. Come and meet us, come and say hello to us. We're missionaries out there planting a church in a city called Córdoba. So you're also welcome to come out, but not all at the same time. Okay, as long as you don't come at the same time, we're fine. We can put up a few people. So uh, th- these are amazing words of Jesus, aren't they? Challenging words of Jesus. And it made me think about the leadership crisis we have in the world at the moment, you know. Uh, it doesn't take a genius to see that. You, know, you don't have to think about all the dictatorships. I was looking at how many dictatorships there are in the world, 71 or something officially. But then you think there are a whole load more that really are dictatorships as well. But then if you come closer to home, the sort of our main countries, the, the, the quality of leaders at the moment, you know, we're in a, a, a real crisis. And there are all sorts of reasons that we could discuss and debate. But one of them has to be that we've separated leadership 
from personal integrity. So political leaders, for instance, should be thinking about the impact of their actions on the lives of others. And yet their training very rarely includes work on personal character. You know, can you imagine these, these challenges Jesus just put out to us? Can you imagine those things being in a politician's training manual? You know, how to make sure your life doesn't make others stumble into bad decisions and actions. Or how to resolve conflict in a loving, personal way. Confronting people in love and forgiving them freely and continually. Or, this is my favourite, at the end of a last, of a hard week's work for a politician, I'm assuming they have a hard week, um, you know, imagine them saying to them, you should say to your colleagues, after everything I've done this week and I'm just an unworthy servant, I've just done my duty. I don't think I've ever heard that come from a politician. But Jesus' approach to leadership is very different and to training leaders. He spends three years mainly with 12 people, 12 guys, living life with them, eating and drinking with them, showing them who he is and showing them what it's like to live in God's family. And he doesn't make a big thing of leadership, even though his disciples are always saying, well, I want to sit at your right hand. I want to be the best. What about me? How, what am I, position am I going to get? Jesus doesn't make a big thing of that. When he does challenge about leadership, he says, if you want to be the best, the, the greatest, you need to be the smallest. You need to be you know, the servant of all, which is what we're coming on to today. But what he does, Jesus, when he's trying to train the leaders of the first churches, because his disciples here are going to be the leaders of the first churches, and they're going to be responsible for a movement that changes the whole world. So when he wants to teach people there to carry the DNA of God's kingdom, he trains them to be good disciples, to be good disciples for God's kingdom. He trains them to learn and think, uh, to live, uh, to to learn to think and live like him. Because if they're good disciples then they will be good leaders of others. But if they're bad disciples, bad apprentices, bad followers, then they're not going to lead anybody well. And anyone here who chooses to be a disciple of Jesus, I don't know where you're at, to be honest. I don't know if, you're just, if you've already become a, decided to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, or if you're just still looking. But anyone who chooses to be a disciple of Jesus has the privilege and the responsibility of leading others to a greater or lesser extent by their example, by their words, by their actions. The question for us, really, today is, will we be leading as good models or bad models? So let's look at these uh, three challenges of Jesus and also a a comment by the disciples in the middle there. First, uh, verse 1 to 3. Jesus says, don't make others stumble. Okay, I'm going to read these verses again. Jesus says to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. So he's saying there will be these stumbling blocks. The word there is scandala, which is basically we get scandalous or scandal, things like that. Um, some translations have gone for temptations to sin will come. But I think, really, if you think about what the word, the word was actually talking about, it was about a bit of wood that was in a trap, or like a pin, that when it was triggered, trapped people. Yeah, so it's kind of things that cause people to stumble is, is not too bad a translation here. Um, stumbling blocks. Uh, and Jesus is saying yeah, there are going to be stumbling blocks for all sorts of people, things that cause people to stumble. But do not let it be you, he's saying. Do not let it be you. That word woe, you know, woe to anyone through whom they come. That's kind of like saying you're finished. If you look at where it's used in the Bible, it's kind of like woe to you means it's over. You know, you've been found out. You're, you're, you're finished. So Jesus follows it up with some serious words in verse 2, doesn't he? It would be better for them 
to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Serious words, aren't they? No. It's better for you to have this big, massive stone that crushes wheat tied around your neck, be thrown in and drown a horrible death than actually cause these little ones to stumble. Now, who are these little ones? There have been lots of suggestions of things like children, new disciples, weaker followers of Jesus. But I was thinking about the context here. We're in Luke's Gospel, and Luke specifically, more than anyone else, shows us how all sorts of marginalized people come to Jesus to have their lives restored by him. And Jesus accepts those who others would not accept. They would consider them outside of God's kingdom, and Jesus welcomes them in. Maybe they're outside of God's kingdom for other people because of a culturally defined condition, like blindness, leprosy, nationality or gender. Or maybe it's because of their conduct, their past, you know, what they've been doing, prostitutes or tax collectors. And I think perhaps those could be the little ones. You, know, you could say it's generally anyone, but if it's any group, I would lean towards those being the little ones, really. Those who, for, for, for various reasons, would find it hard to come into God's family in his kingdom and hard to follow Jesus. And at the same time, the, Jesus is clashing with the Pharisees, the religious people, because they made it hard for people, especially those marginalized people, to enter God's kingdom and to be saved. They made it hard for them to follow Jesus. And they made it far hard for them in three ways. First, because they just directly excluded some marginalized groups of people or individuals. They just said, no, you're, no, you're not getting past. No, you're not getting in. You're out. Secondly, they made it hard because they insisted that people needed to obey all of the Jewish laws and traditions to be accepted by God. And then thirdly, by living a lifestyle of hypocrisy, insisting that others lift up to these standards and then not practicing what they preached. So that was the way, I think, that the different ways in which they were a stumbling block for the people. So it's worth, worth asking ourselves, you know, am I a stumbling block? Do I make it hard for people to come to know Jesus to follow him. You know, perhaps maybe because of our prejudices. Do you have prejudices against certain types of people? One of the saddest moments when we were living in um, Montilla, a village before we moved back up to, to Cordoba, was when a lady in the church came to Christine and I and she said, you know, I, don't, I want a church with normal people. And, and I don't want these people in the church. We had two guys who came to know Jesus off the streets, basically. And they were still working on some stuff. So... You know, they still, sometimes they would change their clothes and not shower. Sometimes they would not change their clothes and shower. You know, and so sometimes they'd have 30 days or whatever with the same clothes. You know. and, and it was a, little, it's a long process, and she couldn't deal with that. I want a church with normal people. Well, for me, the only person who's really normal, according to how God made us to be, is Jesus. But, but you know, so none of us are really normal in that sense. But... But we have prejudices, don't we, like that? Maybe there are people who you find it harder to, to really accept. In that case, you can be a stumbling block for them. Or maybe, maybe I convey the idea to people that they need to reach a certain level to be accepted by God. In my, but it always in my areas of preferences. You know, we have the classic things like, are they coming to enough meetings? If they're not coming to enough meetings, they can't be a follower of Jesus. Or are they praying enough? Are they reading their Bibles? But there can be other things that, we, that are really important for us. And if they're doing such and such a thing, or if they're not doing such and such a thing, then really they can't really be a good disciple of Jesus. They can't be accepted by Jesus. Even though no one would say it in such a crash way, crash way we, we believe that sometimes. And Jesus is saying here, you're either, you can either live like the Pharisees and cause other people to stumble, 
and hinder them relating to God. Or you can be like me and welcome and encourage people into God's family and help them to follow me by what you teach, by what you speak, but also by what you live. So how are you doing with this? You know, to be a disciple of Jesus is not an individualistic thing. It requires an individual response, but at the end of the day, everything we do and say impacts others. So Jesus says, watch yourself. Pay attention to your life. And we need to be continually examining our beliefs. And I would say together in community with others, because we can easily deceive ourselves, but also examining the way we live and speak to see what it shows about what we are truly believing about Jesus and his message. So... Maybe take the opportunity today just to ask people, because we're de- all these things are personal issues about our personal conduct. Maybe take the opportunity to ask someone to challenge you. How am I doing on these three things that we're going to look at today? How am I doing on that? You know, just see, open yourself up to, to someone to challenge you. I just want to say one thing as well to leaders, because Jesus is training the leaders of the church here. One thing to leaders, because often leadership tends to separate us from people. So if you're in a a kind of recognized leadership position here in the church or elsewhere as well. Make sure you have people around you to challenge you about your lifestyle, about your thoughts and words and actions. Invite people to enter that personal space and question you when they see something amiss. But not just the behavior only. There's a word of caution here because sometimes we go straight for the behavior. Um, But instead, the thinking behind the behavior. One of the things we're practicing we're learning, we've been learning over this last year in our little church family in Spain, is to, instead of, is to, is to ask questions that are helpful. Now, one, I think one of the most helpful questions, when someone slips up with something, someone says something or does something, you think, that's ah, just not good. Instead of going for it, well, you shouldn't do that, you know, don't do that. Yeah. We're learning to ask in, in Cordoba, what are you believing about God in this moment that causes you to respond that way? That's a good question. What are you believing about God in this moment that has caused you to respond in that way, to say that thing, to do that thing? Yeah, it's a good question because it opens us up to the possibility of changing. So leaders, but everyone, make sure you have people around you to challenge you on that. Okay, so the second thing Jesus says in verse 3 and 4 is confront and, free and forgive freely. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in, in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Challenging words, no? We know that Jesus taught in other places about the importance of forgiveness, but here specifically, he ties it to rebuking or challenging someone who sins against us. And the rabbis in the times of Jesus taught that you could forgive three times. If you forgave someone three times, you'd done your absolute best. That was it. And after that, you could just do what you wanted with them, you know. You didn't have to forgive them anymore. But Jesus says, at least seven times per day. And if you've been following in Luke's gospel, you'll see that before it was 77 or seven times 70. In other words, until you lose count, just keep on forgiving, keep on forgiving. And it's worth noting that Jesus is talking to the disciples about personal sin against them not, uh, and personal forgiveness. It's not a church-wide thing here. It doesn't need church discipline at this stage. But he leaves it pretty clear If someone wrongs us or sins against us, we're to confront them. We're not to go moaning to others or tell our leaders 
Or, this is one that happens, isn't it? Slide it in as a prayer request, you know, in a small and local group and kind of like, you know, well, you know, such and such is really struggling and they're really having a tough time. You know why I know that? Because they did this or they said this. No, no. We're not to do that. And we're not to avoid them. You know, we're not to avoid the person who we think has wronged us. We're to go directly and quickly to them in love. Now, obviously... It's good to be prayerfully considering things and check out our own attitudes. But we're not to engage in that very British pastime of ignoring the person and hoping that the problem will go away. It's very British, isn't it? Yeah. Um, if someone has wronged us, we have the responsibility and the privilege of going to them and talking to them. You know, more often than not, they won't be aware of the issue even. They'll have said something or done something, they might not even be aware of it. So we're, we're giving them the opportunity to reflect and to repent if they have truly sinned, which is great news, isn't it? But also the possibility of discovering that maybe it was a misunderstanding and not sin after all. But then if the person asks for forgiveness, with a repentant heart, we're to forgive freely, without counting. Jesus wants the DNA of forgiveness in all the communities of God's kingdom, in all his churches from the start, because it reflects the generous forgiving heart of his Father and the core of his message that he came into the world so that we could be forgiven and restored back into a good relationship with God for all eternity. And I know it's complicated. You know, you may say, well, how do we know if the person is truly repentant? I'm not going to answer that here. But you can talk about it over lunch if you want. But if repentance is about changing our thinking or our belief about God, then we can ask these people the same question that we want others to ask us. You know, I just mentioned earlier, you know, I noticed you did or said that. What were you believing about God in that moment that caused you to respond that way? Then we can help them in, to enter into a process of repentance because it always starts with what we believe about God, then what we believe about ourselves as a result, and what we believe about others. That leads to the way we live. So stop and ask yourself, how am I doing with this dynamic? When someone last said or did something wrong against me, did I go to them to gently confront them in love? with the aim of restoring the relationship. How quickly, how quick and ready am I to forgive others? Am I learning to respond like our Heavenly Father, who, as Jonah discovered, smells one whiff of repentance and just showers forgiveness on a whole nation? Or is like the father running towards his youngest son, who's disgraced him and wasted all his inheritance, but he can't wait one minute to restore his full rights as an honoured son? And throws himself upon his neck to smother him with kisses. That's what our father is like. And that's what Jesus calls us to be like. To learn from him. So it's no surprise is it, that the disciples have a bit of a, a blip here. And a bit of a struggle. you know. And they, they, it says in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord. Increase our faith. Well what they're really saying here is. This, this is just too hard. Who can do this? Come on, look. Three times is all right, but to lose count of the number of times you need to forgive, to go directly to the people, to not cause anyone to stumble, we need more faith. And Jesus' response is interesting. We've seen it in other places. But he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. So he's using the mustard seed, really small seed, very small. It was known as being you know, super small. Uh, and then the mulberry tree that was 
like a strong, immovable kind of tree with, with deep roots. You know, you've got to think that in the time of Jesus, they couldn't just dig up the roots of a tree like this with some big excavating thing. So that's why Jesus in other places talks, of, instead of a mulberry tree, a mountain, because it was the same for the people of that time. You couldn't budge them. And he's, but Jesus is saying here, you don't need great faith. You don't need a lot of faith. Faith as small as a mustard seed is enough. Because faith in itself has no power. The power is in the object of faith. So when we put our faith in Jesus, that's immense power. Even if it's small faith. So it's wrong, Jesus is saying, when we look inwards and we say, Oh, how much faith have I got? Oh, how strong am I? No, we need to look to Jesus, who is always strong enough. Just a little bit of faith, a little bit of trust put in Jesus is enough to be able to live lives that don't cause others to stumble, to go to others in love, to confront them when they sin against us, and to rejoice with God when they repent and forgive, and to forgive them over and over again. You know, I often pray for people when they're really struggling, to, they can't see a way forwards, and they're like, I just can't do this, and they have a bit of a disciple moment like this, like the apostles. I often pray for them, just... Father God, will you just give that person, you know, just help them to hold out that one finger to you. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is the one who does everything. He does it all. We've just got to hold out our finger to him. So I often pray that for them, you know, because then that little grain of mustard seed faith is enough. Because if it's focused in Jesus, if it's focused on something else, in ourselves or in others, we're lost. We'll never be able to live this stuff. Okay, I'm going to drink a little bit of water. Yeah. So the third thing Jesus says, then, we'll come on to that, which is know your place as a servant, verse 7 to 10. Um, in Bolivia in 1932, there was a famous battle called the Battle of Boqueron. I was saying to Ney, Boquerones are, in England, you have two words for them, so anchovies and whitebait. But in Spanish, they're just the same thing, Boqueron, okay? Um, and in 1932, you had this Bolivian lieutenant colonel, Manuel Marzana, and he had 432 Bolivians in this military camp to defend the whole area. And it was crucial. They needed to defend the area from the Paraguayans. So the Paraguayan colonel turns up and he he says, "Ah, I don't know, I think they've probably got 1,200 people in there. We don't know. It could be as much as 1,200. I'm going to take 5,000 and just smash them to pieces. But after repeated attempts to take the camp on day six... He said, we're going to need more reinforcements. So he called more troops in, and it was up to 11,000, maybe 14,000 even, some people say, against the 432 Bolivians, which some of them would have died by then, obviously. Then on day 10, completely isolated and without food and law and ammunition, Marthana told his troops, only shoot at point-blank range. Only shoot if you're sure you can kill someone. Then... Having eaten their horses and their mules, the Bolivians chewed on the bones of their animals and had to recycle their own urine to keep alive. Sorry for the details, but it it just tells you the seriousness of it. Finally, after 19 days, the Paraguayan colonel took control of the fort. But what he discovered to his surprise was a handful of almost dead Bolivians that had held off his thousands of troops. When he asked the Bolivian leader, Marthana, how they had managed to hold off for so long. He replied, we have done nothing more than our duty. Just what Jesus says here. And the guy who told me that story is Luis, who's a Bolivian that's with our church family at the moment. And he, uh, he, he lives that. 
he lives these words of Jesus. He, you know, he, he refers to himself as our butler. Yeah? So when he's around the house, you know, we have sometimes 10 people, 20, 30, 40 around the house. And, and Luis says, look, don't worry, I've got it. I've got all this. You know? I want you guys to be able to just talk with people and do your stuff and be there and enjoy time with people. So I've got everything. So you know, they come through the door and he'll open the door to them and he'll... He'll go and take their coats if he needs to, take the food into the kitchen or whatever, um, give them drinks all evening. Yeah, he's just running around like crazy. But he says, that's it. You know, I just want to serve. I'm happy to serve. That's my identity. Because he understands not just what he understands from the Bolivian guy, but what he understands from Jesus, that we have that amazing privilege to serve Jesus. And that's so in contrast to what we see in the world, isn't it, where Everyone expects re- approval, affirmation. And one of the problems we have when we say everyone's equal is then everyone should get thanks all the time for everything. But life isn't like that. And Jesus said, if we want to be his followers, his apprentices, earlier in Luke's gospel, we need to take up our cross. And you'll remember what that means. That it means that you're like a dead person walking. When someone took the cross plank on their shoulders like that, it meant it was over. They have no rights. You couldn't say oh, someone just spat in my face or someone kicked me. No, you had no rights. And Jesus says here, when we've done everything, we should say we are unworthy servants. We've just done our duty. We shouldn't be expecting people to come and say thanks to us, even God, to be saying, oh, thank you very much. Jesus saying, thank you very much. Everyone else to be showering us with acclamation. We're just doing our duty. So I want to ask you, do you look for approval and affirmation from others? Or from God? I think, if we're honest, all of us do. I do, certainly. It's one of the things I wrestle with. But if we do, then it's for two reasons, I would say. Either because we don't appreciate the amazing privilege we have of serving the King of Kings. Of serving Jesus. The one who holds the world in his hands. The one who will judge everything. The ruler of all. The owner of everything. We have that privilege of serving him. That's our identity. Servants of Jesus. So maybe we've forgotten that and we need to be reminded. We need to remind each other of that. Or perhaps we don't remember that actually we've already got God's approval through the death of Jesus. God accepts us and is happy with us, not because of what we achieve, not because of our service, but because of what he has done. So how's that working out in your life? Sacrificial obedience without expecting anything in return. Are you able to say, I'm just happy to serve? It's a big challenge, isn't it? The amazing thing with all of these three challenges is that actually Jesus is not separated from us in that. Jesus does all of this. Jesus does it all. He does serve us. And Jesus did serve the disciples. The night he was arrested, he served them food. He washed their feet. He took on the form of a servant and he left the glory of heaven to serve us. And to give his life to restore our broken relationship with God. And earlier on in Luke's gospel, as you'll have been reading it earlier on, um, in chapter 12, it says this. Be dressed, this is Jesus speaking, be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. So that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and will make them recline at the table and he will come and wait on them. 
This is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about himself when he returns to take his followers to be with him for all eternity. That is what he's like. That's why he can be so strong with us and say, watch yourselves. Don't let anyone stumble on your account. Confront people and forgive freely when they wrong you. And just be servants and obey joyfully. Because he's shown us in his life and his death how to live all that. And because one day he will serve us again. So I honestly think that if we learn to live well as disciples of Jesus, we will be good leaders of others. And it will be attractive, won't it, to be in a community where people can speak openly. When someone's wronged them, they can go to them and they can talk with them. And you're seeing that forgiveness and that love and, and, and the concern where, we, where we're always concerned about what our actions will, how they'll affect other people without being stressed about it, you know. Just, we're just naturally thinking about it. And where, where we just love to serve everyone around us because we're serving Jesus. Do, do you long to be like that? Do you long to be in that kind of community? I, I can see a lot of it already here and I praise God for that. But, but I think we can always learn. We can always grow in these things. And you, you may be someone here today though who says, look, I'm here today but I'm not part of this yet. I'm not a follower of Jesus yet. I'm not a disciple of Jesus well, this is a picture of what it will be like to live in the family of God, in the family of Jesus, in God's kingdom. And you can be a part of that. You can receive God's forgiveness for every time you've ever said or done or thought anything wrong, for every time you've chosen to put yourself first instead of thinking about God and about others. You can have that all forgiven, even today, and you can join Jesus' family. So, I want to encourage you to come and talk to someone today. Yeah, we'd love to help you if you're in that position where you just, you know, you'd still feel like you're looking in from the outside, but you'd like to consider joining that family and we can help you explore things a bit. People can look at things with you. Um, but I just want to encourage everyone, take these things home and talk with people about it. Because this is a community dynamic. It's about individual challenges, but it's also about challenging each other together making ourselves accountable, opening ourselves up to one another so that we can learn to live uh, trusting in Jesus, ultimately, uh, and trusting in, in what he's done for us and from that base, living a life that is wonderful. So let's pray together. Father God, if we're honest, uh, all of us, probably feel a bit like the disciples. I'm nowhere near that level. How can I do these things? And yet we know that you in Jesus have done those things, all those things. You've showed us that perfect example. And because of the death of Jesus, you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us. Thank you also that you promise to be with us to the ends of the ages for all of our life. You promise to Help teach us. And so we ask you help us to continue to work these things out in practice. You'd help us to, to be more aware of our actions and how they affect others. You'd help us to you'd give us that heart so full of gratitude like we heard about the, someone earlier, a lady who who just washed, washed Jesus' feet with her hair because she was so full of gratitude. 
We want to be like that. We want to learn to be so thankful and so freed up because you accept us and we don't have to look for your approval. We want to be like that so we can forgive others freely, so we can serve without counting the cost, just thinking uh, in the sense of just saying, I'm happy to do it because it's my identity as a servant. I want to be like Jesus. So Father, help us with these things and help us to help others to, to come near to you and, and to discover all that you offer through Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.